Yeah, welcome to the Common Good Podcast. Uh, Doug Padgett here, and uh, I'm going it solo today, friends. Uh, it's going to be me uh, doing a little um, podcast monologue, which is uh, so, sort of fun. I used to do all my podcasts this way all the time. It was uh, me talking straight to camera about uh, things that uh, you know I thought were important and I wanted to talk about with all of you. Super glad to have you aboard. If you're a regular part of our podcast, uh, podcast around here and you know normally we have other voices on on with us today so I hope you can enjoy it and tolerate it with it just being me uh, but I'm glad I have a chance to to address this issue uh, today and, and would love your input I'm gonna be watching the chat as best that I can during this so if you're watching this on a live stream I'd very much like to hear from you in the in the chat and that is uh, the, the way that we're treating asylum seekers and refugees in Ukraine is so inspiring it is such a powerful demonstration of goodness of people around the world um, and how they choose to care for those who are in such desperate need. And look, there, there are few things that compare to the crisis that are affecting the Ukrainians. Um, it is a confluence of issues from the sudden and uh, unexpected, even though it was talked about for months and really for years that Russia was wanting to invade the Ukraine. Most people believed it wasn't going to happen, and, and rightly so. They should have believed it wasn't going to happen because it absolutely should not have. So it came very suddenly. And unlike a natural disaster, which can also come very suddenly and put people into all kinds of crisis, having to move away from their home and become you know, refugees, in this case, there is no end in sight for this. Uh, and the level of devastation that Russia is inflicting on the physical land and the property and the infrastructure of Ukraine, the emotional and traumatic impact on people's lives and hearts and minds, just totally overwhelming and painfully, uh, painfully devastating. So it's unusual. And, and it has invoked an unusual response from people around the world. I was just talking this morning with someone that, uh, that I ran into, and I was telling about the work that we're doing, try to raise awareness around uh, immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers. And we'll talk about the difference in, those, in that language here in a minute. But uh, those people seeking the help of the United States, and he said so poignantly, he said, you know, watching the people of Poland so graciously and open-heartedly and with creativity and with solutions in mind, find ways to take in the Ukrainian people. That's the way we should all be living, he said. That's, that's how we should be doing it. And, and this is a sentiment that people have been expressing you know, now for a uh, better part of two weeks since this uh, horrible military uh, war has started, is wouldn't it be good if we all responded this way? And it sure would. I think it's crucial. Uh, love to know your thoughts on this if you're involved in, in some ways that people are caring for Ukrainians now. I know that a lot of people are using their Airbnb accounts to purchase rooms or housing in adjacent uh, countries to the Ukraine so that people can just move right in. And, and, uh, and that's a way that they're paying for it. So people are coming up with these creative workaround ways to provide care and support. But what's happening is we're all looking at this devastation and saying to ourselves, it shouldn't be this way. There's no reason it's like this. It's very similar to the way a lot of us feel about the Afghan refugees. The Afghan refugees who many of them worked in the war effort that the U.S. was involved in in Afghanistan. And if you're already feeling your mind sort of spin as you think about the war in Afghanistan, the United States-led war in Iraq, and how that relates to the Russian war in Ukraine— yeah, you should be, right? Seeking regime change in other countries and then inflicting pain on citizens to cause them to rise up against the government that would otherwise be in power is the kind of thing that we shouldn't be involved in and has all kinds of moral and just practical implications to them that are, that are quite horrible. Um, but the way that the United States citizens, the United States government, the United States overall ethos toward Afghans who are seeking to come into the country. In fact, um, my wife is part of an Afghan resettlement circle, the way that the State Department is allowing not only official refugee resettlement organizations to help resettle 
refugees from Afghanistan, but individuals can form a cluster and a group and then become registered with the State Department and then be assigned a family for relocation purposes. So this circle that my wife is a part of, they're forming, they're renting an apartment on behalf of this family for six months or for a year. They're uh, raising money uh, to help them in their transition costs. In fact, these are some of the requirements that you have to fulfill if you're going to be one of the circles. But there's individual people meeting every week, uh, loading up furniture into you know rental trucks and driving it into an apartment and getting it ready so that this Afghan family can that's already in the United States, living in a military base somewhere in the United States, can be resettled in the city of Minneapolis. Because that's what human beings do when they find people struggling and in crisis. It's what we're doing now with people from Afghanistan. It's what people in adjacent countries to Ukraine are doing around the war there. It's what we have done in the United States from its very beginning. We've had a conflicted relationship with immigrants and refugees. We have said some people can come in, some people can't come in. We've, we've put up, in the United States in our history, we've put up limitations. There was a Chinese Exclusion Act that went into place in the late 1800s after a lot of Chinese immigrant labor was used to build railroads and to build the expansion to the West. Then passed a law that said Chinese cannot immigrate into the United States. And that stayed in place until 1965. It was only removed in the civil rights era because of civil rights legislation. So we've had a conflicted relationship with who can be in the United States and who's kept out. And even in these days, the time that we live right now, the way we're thinking about Ukrainian refugees, the way we are responding to Afghan refugees, that's not how we've responded to Syrian refugees. That's not how we've responded to refugees from other parts of the Middle East, where there have been more refugees displaced in the Middle East in the last 10 years than from anywhere else in the world. And yet the United States has taken in less than 1% of all of those refugees, has said no to refugees from those places, and has said no to immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers from Central American countries. And from Mexico. And it makes you ask yourself, what, what is it? And, and one answer, which people rightly give, is that we tend to be more open to caring for people who look like the majority population in the United States. You're hearing people all over say, man, I look at these Ukrainians and I see my mom, I see my grandmother, I see someone who looks like me. Yeah, okay, so that's part of the reason. But that doesn't explain Afghanistan. People that are coming to the United States and being welcomed in as refugees into the United States from Afghanistan, they don't look like the majority society here. There's brown-skinned people that are welcomed in as well, but there's an exception made because they were a part of our war effort and therefore were seen as people who were really, truly part of the United States already. They already showed themselves to be part of the United States. And this is really the root of the, of the issue, it seems to me. People feel like those folks who are really like Americans, look like majority culture Americans, or have behaved in a way, working with the military, they're welcomed in. Syrians don't quite trust people from Syria. Don't want Mexicans in this country, even though 24% of our population and higher than that in some places have Mexican heritage. Don't really want Guatemalans. Don't really want indigenous peoples from El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras and other places. So something is going on. And I don't think it's as simple as simply skin color. I think that absolutely plays a role. But I think skin color and cultural background actually says to people, we don't think you're enough really like an American. And this becomes the real struggle point for a lot of people. Can we welcome in those who look differently, act differently, but are just as much able to experience America and be the future of America as anyone else? That's the question that this really raises. And, and I hope we can find a way to do this because the people of the United States from all culture across, cultures across the United States want to be good and kind, just like people across the world want to be good and kind. Now, it's easy to tell yourself, and it's, there's days where what I'm about to say, you know, really has to, really has to um, uh, argue for its point. 
It's easy for people to say, no, no, the world is actually dark and evil and horrible and cruel. And what we're seeing in the Russian military bombing and killing civilians in Afghanistan or in Ukraine or the way the United States was involved in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and other places shows it. And then there's also the kindness in the hearts of people all over the world. We really are pulled and tugged by the crisis that afflicts other people. And that's the thing that we're facing right now. That's the, that, that, that's the moment that we have in Ukraine. And it's the moment that we have on our own border. Some of you know that I spent the better part of this last fall biking from San Diego, California, along the U.S.-Mexico border down to the tip of Texas and then along the U.S. coast over to Florida. And we were looking at, talking to, hearing the stories of, and trying to amplify the experiences of people who live on our border and refugees, asylum seekers, and immigrants, and trying to tell the story of our immigration border policies. In fact, we're now going to be rolling out a lot of those stories. We're making a whole documentary about this. We'd love for you to be involved in that. Go to votecommongood.com. You'll find out ways. We're even going to be traveling the country. We're going to be in Pittsburgh and Columbus, Ohio, and in West Michigan, and in South Bend, Indiana, and in Illinois, and in Wisconsin, and near Madison, and in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Over the next two and a half weeks, we're going to be touring those places and holding events and bringing people along with us who work and live on the border to tell the stories of what they've experienced and showing pieces of the documentary because we want people to experience the same heart-opened care for people on our southern border as we do for the people having to cross the border of Ukraine or to flee the persecution that's coming in Afghanistan. There's a couple of things that come up in this. People say, well, the circumstance is different. Like when it's so bad and there's a war, then yes, we need to do something about it. Or if people have worked for the United States government and have worked on our behalf and now we're going to be threatened because of that work, then we have a different obligation to them. I get it. And there's some people who would say, you know, someone living in Guatemala or Honduras or Mexico, we just don't owe it to them. We don't owe it to them to come here. Just like for you to consider that argument for a minute, though. On what basis do we decide that someone's struggle, difficulty, and pain is sufficient enough for our care? Individually, collectively, from our religious and, and nonprofit organizations, or from our government? Now, you might say to yourself, well, we, we can't welcome everyone from the whole world. I hear this a lot, and, and I get the point, you know, people saying, like, we can't have everybody in the world come to the United States. I mean, it would just overwhelm the United States. Everyone from the world doesn't want to come to the United States. You know, one of the ways before the Trump administration put a lockdown on immigrants coming in and then COVID uh, protocols, a thing called Title 42, which prevents people from coming into the United States because of COVID precautions, which really does need to expire now. Before those things were in place, the primary way that you could get into the United States was to have a relative, a close relative, a mother, father, son, daughter, spouse in the United States already with legal status in the country. That's the primary way because family unification is the, one of the things our immigration policy wants to, wants to keep up with. Think about the people you know who are from other, who were born in other countries and have immigrated to the United States. They still have family in Ethiopia, in Nigeria, in Syria, in Guatemala, in Mexico. Close family relatives, mothers, sons, spouses, they don't all come. You know why they don't all come? Because they don't want to come. Not everyone wants to come to the United States. One of the things we learned on this tour and people who've worked with immigrants in the United States and around the world know not everyone wants to leave their home country. No matter how difficult and painful it is, they don't want to leave. See, this is the other thing that we're seeing about Ukraine, right? I was having a conversation with, with a friend the other day who was saying, 
You know, I was watching this interview with a, a woman who was uh, in Ukraine. She was being interviewed by a newscaster who and, and was saying, I don't think we're going to leave. I don't think we're going to flee our city. And we have, you know, this little child and stuff, but I think we're going to stay. And, and he was, you know, like a lot of us talking out loud saying, I, I don't know. I would leave. I would totally get out of there. I'm not going to stay there. But the more we talked about it, we realized, well, yeah, if you're a person who has the means to go and relocate and start your life somewhere else, you do that. But if this is where your job is, this is where your family is, this is where your friends are, this is the language that you speak, this is your home, this is where your ancestors are and where your community exists, and you're going to now leave that and go live in a refugee camp, maybe in Poland and no end in sight for how long you're going to be in the refugee camp and you don't know what's going to happen to your town when you're gone and you don't know what's going to happen to everything you own. So you're just going to throw yourself at the wind and now go and live a sustenance level life. Very few of us would do that. People don't leave their home countries willy nilly. Would you just Ask yourself that basic question. Would you go to Canada even? Would you even go to Australia? Would you relocate to New Zealand, to some sort of exotic, beautiful uh, sort of vacation destination places where you wouldn't even have to learn another language? But imagine having to learn a different language. Imagine, imagine having to live in a different culture. Imagine saying, I want to go to a place where people maybe don't want me there. This is what faces so many people who are seeking to leave their homes. We, in human history, we deal with these two forces. Human beings have been moving. They've been transitioning from spaces all over the globe. In fact, the globe land masses have been moving, have been shifting over millions of years, right? Movement and location shift, it's part of life. Human beings are on the move all the time. That's true. And people want to stay home. They want to stay where they were born. Most people live within 100 miles of the place they were born. People don't just uproot their lives and leave. Even think about your own immigrant story, how your family arrived here, how you came. It was likely one person, two maybe a small family who left and broke away from everyone else and they moved across a landmass or traveled an ocean. It was a few people who left, but most of them didn't. Even in the times of great migration, even when the United States was recruiting people to come to the United States in the 1800s, even in the 1800s when the United States had totally open borders where anyone could come to the United States without any certification or permission at all. People didn't do it in mass. Some do, most don't. People are not going to just flood into the United States if we have an accessible, understandable, just and fair way for people to enter the United States. You also might say to yourself, well, Look, when it's a crisis and there's a refugee, you just make the rules fit. You just find a way for them to fit. And no one says, do it the legal way, because you realize everything has gone absolutely berserk. And legal ways, forget it all. Just get them on a train, just get them on a bus and get them out of there and bring them into somewhere else and figure it out later. That's what you do in a crisis. It's not how you normally want to run a society. The problem is in the United States, there is not a decent legal way for people to come into the United States. The immigration process to come into the United States is capricious, it's limited, it's confusing, it's expensive, and it's basically inaccessible. And it's teeny. There's a teeny amount of people who can come into the United States. One of the issues, we put a limit that no country can have more legal immigrants in any year than other countries by 7%. I, I said that poor. Let me say it again. No country can have more than 7% more than all the other countries of the number of immigrants. It doesn't make any sense. 
there are so many more people in adjacent countries to the United States than people that live in countries where it's more difficult to get here. So we have this limit. No matter how they're coming, they're coming under legal visas, coming to work, coming to do whatever they're doing. Our immigration process, our immigration status is complex to the point that nearly no one understands it. I've been talking for more than two years with people about immigration. And one of the things you hear every single time I talk to someone, people who work in immigration, people who work you know, in, in Washington, D.C. for the government under both the Trump and Biden administrations, people that work as immigration lawyers, they'll all tell you, well... Okay, when we start talking about, you know, uh, the process for uh, immigration or for asylum seekers or for refugees, it's really complicated. Everyone gives this caveat. Now, look, lawyers tend to do this anyway. They always remind you how complicated the law is because the law just is complicated. But it is really convoluted and difficult to understand and expensive. Now, when there's a refugee crisis, we kick in a different system. And we allow people to come to a country and then get it sorted out later. That's what some people are asking on our southern border, whether they're from Haiti or from Venezuela or from Cuba or from Central American countries or from Mexico. They're all coming and they're trying to do it the legal way. Because here's the thing. Look, every refugee, every asylum seeker, every immigrant that I have met, and I would challenge you to check with any of the you've ever met, ask them if they would have preferred to come the legal way. Everyone wants to come the legal way. If there's a legal process, people are going to use it. If there's not a legal process because it's either inaccessible or has been stopped or just doesn't exist, then people are going to find another way. And that's what's going on. A little caveat, a little side note here, by the way. Of the number of people who are in the United States without legal authorization, and we have a pretty good idea what that number is. Of the number of people that are in the United States, 68% of those people came into the country legally. What now puts them in non-legal status is that they've overstayed their visa. Only 32% of the, country, of the people who are in the country without legal authorization have come into the country without legal authorization. Now, you might say, well, that's still a high number. But what I'm, bring, what I'm bringing up here is that the problem is not simply the, the set of conditions by which people are coming into the United States, but the fact that we have a visa system that expires. And here's why they don't leave. Because they know that if they had legal authorization to come in, say, to work or to visit, and they leave, that there's no way to get back in again. It's like you had your hand stamped at some sort of an event and the person when they stamped their hand said, hey, there's no re-entry with this stamp. If you leave, you don't come back in. Well, that causes you to stay, right? Well, that, imagine that if you've come to the United States to work or your family's here or you've come to visit and you're starting to lay down roots and you want to leave for a significant period of time or for a short period of time and you can't get back in. So we have a structured system that does not allow the natural flow. Give some suggestions for what we need to do, which is to create flow, a presumption of openness as opposed to a presumption of closed at our border. Some people want to call that open borders. I don't mind that because I just went to Mexico and I flew into Mexico and the immigration process into Mexico for someone that was going to be there for the, you know, the two weeks or so that I was there. The presumption is, come on in. Glad to have you. Welcome aboard. The person stamping my passport at the immigration counter there in Cancun looked up at Shelly and I and said, welcome to Mexico. The presumption is the door swings open. And when I came back into the United States, the person at Customs and Border Patrol stamped my passport and said, welcome home to the United States. Welcome and welcome. That open borders for me it means I can go through them. It's not a wall. It's a door. Most people, they don't have that in the United States. I was having to say to Shelly, doesn't it just break your heart to know that all of these Mexican people that we're hanging around with on vacation can't come with us to our country? They can't do it. We can come here. They can't come to our country. Just simply can't do it. There is no legal way. There's no visa available. They've all been given out. 
You can't come. The country's not full. The job market isn't full. There's plenty of room. We actually need people from other countries to work in the United States. Our economy is so big. It's so robust. It is so complex. We need more people. We need more workers. We need truck drivers, and we need people working in businesses, and we need people working in factories, and we need people working in fields. We need people working everywhere. We all know that. We've watched this during the pandemic. But they can't come because there is not a legal process by which someone can come. If you're a passport holder in the United States, you can go to Canada and come here. In fact, Canadians can come and visit here. Very little effort. Mexicans? Nope. Guatemalans? Really got to work hard for that one. So what's going on? We have an assumption that some people look and feel and sound like America, and some people don't. Some people have earned it, and for some people it just came naturally. This is part of what's going on. Now, there's different groupings of people. Uh, Dave, I appreciate your comment here. Dave makes the comment that uh, Barack Obama had a good program to help uh, kids to become citizens. Yeah, it's, uh, Dave, what you might be referring to here is the Dreamers Act. There are kids who were brought into the United States, maybe legally, but then their parents' status changed and their status changed. So they came to visit, and then they're here, and then their visa said they were going to leave. They didn't leave. They stayed. That was 18 years ago. Now they're 20 years old. They've only had a life in the United States, and we're trying to figure out how to keep them here. They're often referred to as the dreamers. It's a big issue and a really big problem and needs to get solved and should be solved right now. Also moving people to temporary from, from temporary to more permanent status. It's another thing that has to happen across the board, people that are, are in the United States. You need to have a pathway to citizenship is what that's called. So that's one of the categories, people already in the United States. Then there's people who are not in the United States, Ukrainians, Afghanis, Syrians, Guatemalans, Mexicans, Hondurans, Haitians. All these people looking to get in the United States. Well, on what basis can they come? One of the bases is you ask for a visa, a visa to work, a visa to visit. Uh, you go for a family reunification visa, meaning you have family members that are here. Again, all of that was shut down by the, by the Trump administration. And so much of that apparatus was totally gutted. People just trying to process your ordinary amount of coming into the United States. And then COVID shut it down even tighter. And we're just starting to unravel some of that. But even if it gets unraveled enough and we get back to pre-Trump days, right? I mean, there's days where I just think, oh, I'd love to live in the alternative reality where that whole nightmare never happened. But it did. But you could even get back to, you know, fall of 2016. Our immigration system was broken then. You can get back to 86 and our immigration system was broken then, even though Reagan really did a thing that everyone refers to as amnesty, just gave citizenship to everybody who was hardy in the United States. But it was broken then. It was broken in 1964 and tried to fix it in 1965 by allowing people from China to ever immigrate to the United States. Like It is a broken, broken system that needs to be fixed. And some ways to fix it are to recognize that these different categories of people need to be streamlined and made clearer. So one of the ways you can come into the United States is seek a visa. You ask for a visa, you come to work. That's not how a refugee is granted permission to come to the United States, though. Okay, A, a refugee, the difference between a refugee and an immigrant and an asylum seeker kind of matters, at least, you know, to my mind. An immigrant is anybody who was born and is a citizen of another country or state and then relocates, immigrates, moves to that new place. So it's technically true that as a Minnesotan, as somebody who is registered and born and licensed in Minnesota and a taxpayer and citizen and resident, and then I moved to Texas, I migrated to Texas. Then I migrated back. Technically, that's true. It's not how we usually use the term. We just say, oh, you're relocated. Because if you're in the same country or in the same state, we don't tend to use migration language. But that's what it is. But if you come now from another state you be, or another country, you can become an immigrant. 
when we were in Mexico, we ran into a couple that was, uh, uh, the, the man was born in Puerto Rico. And Shelly said, oh, when did you immigrate to the United States? And he said, you know, I don't want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to correct you here, but you should just know that because I'm Puerto Rican and Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, I didn't immigrate to the United States. I migrated to the United States. In other words, I relocated. I moved because Puerto Rico is part of the United States as a territory. Whole conversation for another time. And Shelly said, oh, thanks. I find that so helpful. Help me understand the difference between immigrate from another place to migrate. And so we had this conversation. It was, it was really great and really helpful. He deals with it all the time as somebody from Puerto Rico, right? They're like, well, when were you born here? And, you know, he's like, I'm a U.S. citizen, even though I'm Puerto Rican. You know, it'd be like being from, you know, from Honolulu or being from, you know, uh, uh, Des Moines or Waterloo. Yeah, you're just a much part of the United States. So we migrated here, didn't immigrate here. But somebody from Mexico or somebody from you know, Central American countries or Haiti or Ukraine, they'd be an immigrant. Now, the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker is basically when your status to be in the United States is granted to you. The difference is when that status is, is assigned to you. If this, your status... To enter the United States and to be legally in the United States under a humanitarian cause is given to you while you are in your in a country other than the United States, your home country or a third country. It's granted to you before you get to the United States. You're called a refugee. If that is granted to you when you're in the United States... In other words, you come to the United States to a port of entry, to a border, or you're in the United States and you go to a consulate and you say, I'm seeking a humanitarian permission to be in the United States for a set of reasons that are acceptable as a refugee or an asylum seeker. And I'm in the United States and I'm asking for asylum in the United States. I'm asking to enter the United States. You're an asylee. You're seeking asylum. If you're in your home country and you're seeking it, you're a refugee. The United States does not give refugee status to people in Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, Haiti, these places. If you're from some of those countries, the only way to get permission to be in the United States that's not on a work visa or some other kind of a, a family, family unification visa is to get to the United States and to ask for asylum. We're not granting it to a group. In Afghanistan, we declared Afghans refugees. So a class of people were granted access to the United States before they were in the United States. They didn't have to get on airplanes and, or get on boats and get to the United States to ask for it. It was granted to them where they were, so we call them refugees. Now, I think this is more than just, oh, well, there's a curious little footnote for a guy that likes to read the back of the book. I think this is actually something that we need to look at. The reason that there's so many people on our U.S. border coming to the border, turning themselves over to border agents, is they're seeking asylum. Now, what the Trump administration did was put in place a thing called that's colloquially referred to as the remain in Mexico policy. The Biden administration has tried to end this, but the Supreme Court has made them keep it in place until they unravel it on a more legal basis and not just with an executive order. So the Remain in Mexico is that if, says that if you are an asylee and you want status to be in the United States based on a humanitarian crisis, and you come to the U.S. border and you are standing with a U.S. border agent, therefore on U.S. soil and U.S. territory, and say, I want to seek permission to be in the United States as a refugee, you're seeking asylum because you're on U.S. soil. The United States policy has been under Trump and remains this under Biden because of court order that you have to go back to another country, your own or Mexico, and wait there until your case is adjudicated. U.S. international law and U.S. law and international law, up until Trump put in place this policy, made it illegal to make someone leave the country while you adjudicated their asylum claim. If you got to U.S. soil, you were allowed to stay in the United States until your case was adjudicated. Well, many people, including in the Trump administration, the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party, 
have said, well, we think that's just a gateway for people to come into the United States and it takes too long. And so we don't want to have them in the United States while they're while, while they're waiting. This so let's make them stay in Mexico, a violation of goodness and a violation of law. And yet that's what the United States is doing. If some so people have said this repeatedly, like, well, why do they keep coming to the United States to ask for asylum? Why don't they just go to the, you know, like the American consulate or to the embassy in their own in their own country and ask for it there? Well, you can do that if you're a refugee and status has been granted to a people people in a certain situation. But you can't do that as an individual asylum seeker. No lawyer, but basically Refugee status is granted to a group of people who have a shared set of conditions, war, tragedy, natural disaster. Asylum is offered to people who are in a very bad situation, but they have an individual case to adjudicate. So in my mind, being, you know, a 55-year-old uh, American goes back to, you know, some Russian trying to get into the United States and wants to leave the Russian government or he's, a, you know, the Russian athlete in the 1980s and wants to get to a U.S. consulate so he can stay on U.S. soil. I'm seeking asylum because the individual circumstance this person has uh, would grant them permission to be in the United States as opposed to all Russians or all Russian wrestlers or all Russian military are granted access to the United States where you're living. That would make them a refugee status. So this is what's going on. So should we reconsider how people can seek asylum in the United States, whether getting here or not? For sure. Should we stop the practice of removing people from the United States? Absolutely, we should. Let me just tell you one more thing that's happening on the U.S. border and I am U.S.-Mexico border, and I saw it uh, myself and experienced it myself. The space leading up to the border agents, there, there's a specific spot on the planet all the way along borders where if you are, you know, a half of an inch to the south, you're in, in this case, Mexico. If you're a half of an inch to the north, you're in the United States. So somewhere, it's got to make sense, I guess, just naturally, somewhere there is a line. And that line is dictated by in or out. You're in Mexico, out of Mexico. You're in the United States, you're out of the, out of the United States. There is a spot. The law has been, all you got to do is get that half an inch into the U.S. soil and you can ask for asylum. That's been the law. What the United States is doing on the southern border by practice, this is not like, oh, the guys are getting away with some no goodness. No, this is, this, is what, this is what's set. And go to Mexico, go to Tijuana, go to uh, Reynosa, go to Nogales, go to McAllen, go to any of these places, go to El Paso, you'll see it. 150 yards from that dot on the ground, which marks the border distinction between the U.S. and Mexico, 150 yards into Mexico, there are U.S. military and border patrol agents stopping people and asking them for their passports or for their permission to approach the border patrol. You're not supposed to do that. That's illegal. That's violation of international law. And it's going on all over. No one's doing anything about it. The activists are doing things about it. We can show, I can show you a video. Uh, you can go on our website. You'll see it. Go to Come to one of our events in Pittsburgh or Columbus or West Michigan or... Uh, you know, Illinois or Wisconsin, Minneapolis. We'll show you videos of it, what they're doing. Because they know that the law is if you get to the United States, you can ask for asylum and you're supposed to be able to stay. But the practice put in place by the Trump administration and now continu continuing to this day, you know, we're in March of 2022, still going on, is Border Patrol agents are keeping people from even getting to the place where they could ask for asylum. So the degree to which we work so hard to care for refugees in Afghanistan and the heartfelt and the, number, the thousands of people who have put money and time and energy into helping us uh, uh, people in crisis and, and, and refugees and asylum seekers in whether it's permanent or temporary in Ukraine is just heartwarming. And yet we also do this. And look, I'm just not satisfied with sort of the, you know, the two faces theory of individual societies and countries. Yeah, you know, there's a good side and there's also a bad side. You know, that's just sort of how it goes. There's a little darkness in all of us, you know, the sinner and saint business. That's just that's a cop out and we shouldn't have it. Uh, let's let's build the good and let's diminish the negative. And um, 
So look, uh, let's take this moment of what of goodness that we're feeling from Ukraine, of caring for Ukrainians, and let's extend that to our own border. Let's extend that to our own experience as the ones not just cheering it on and saying, well, good for them. Let's extend it to the migrants who are in the United States but don't have documentation. Treat them with the same care that you want to treat the Ukrainians who are suffering or the Afghans who are having to relocate. Recognize how difficult it is. Ask them what compels them to be here. Because you know what you're not going to hear? Well, I don't know. What, what am I doing here? What do you mean, what am I doing here? America's the best. No, that's not what they're saying. No, no one's like, I'm just going to make a run for the border and go to the U.S. And that's where I want my life. Man, we interviewing these people uh, that are in Remain in Mexico camps in, in Mexico last fall. And, you know, moms and, and dads and young kids and 12-year-olds just saying, I really want to just go home, but I can't. And now I have nowhere to go. But my brother lives, my aunt lives, my cousin lives in the United States. I'm trying to have an extended family connection. Not, I want to go to Abercrombie and Fitch. Not, I want to be rich. Not, you know, I, I, I want to marry a future president. It just, um, once you hear these stories, you begin to see that the mythology about all this just crumbles. You just want to go home. It's one of the things you'll hear from even long-term, even second, third generation refugees, especially refugees who were displaced. One of the, one of the big differences between a refugee, an asylum seeker, or a chosen path immigrant is they're often leaving home, the refugees and asylum seekers, without their choice. Something's driving them out. Fear for their family. Can't stay here anymore. It's heartbreaking. But deep down in their heart, they want to go home. Now, some people are like, that's why we don't want them in the United States. I hear this too. You stay in conversations long enough with people and you start to hear the other reasons. And they're like, you know, here's the thing. They don't really want to assimilate. They don't really want to become part of America. They just want to live here and work until they can get back home. And so why should we open up our country to people like that? Got to think about that one for a while and where that's coming from in people. But these are, these are legitimate feelings that people have. And, and look, we've been talking about this now for 43 minutes and 22 seconds and in a monologue. We haven't been talking, let's be clear. Uh, I've been yapping in your ear. But we probably talked longer now than many people have in 10 years of conversation about immigration. I mean, other than like, hey, we need people to work in our fields and who else is going to clean our hotels? And, you know, we have to have people like how far does the conversation go with most people? Most of us don't spend any time thinking about this stuff or talking about it. And once you do and once you find your energy getting into, which is why we're making a documentary and traveling the country and riding bicycles across it, trying to engage people in these conversations. Once you're in on it, you start to realize this is just really different than I thought that it was. And yeah, it is. And it's not always better. Uh, all right, so um, a couple of uh, comments here on the from people in the um, in the video. I'm just going to pop them up in the order that I see them here. Dave, <laughs> thanks, Dave. Uh, well, this is this is a flashback to I don't know 20 minutes ago when I said the pre-Trump days. This is a nice thought. Uh, all right, thanks. Hey, uh, and Jerry Lynn says uh, we need visas to work, visit, education, and reunifications. All dreamers should be citizens. So I think, uh, Jerry, if, if I've got you right, you're you're making the argument that once somebody's already in the United States and has lived here for X period of time, which gives them this category of what we call dreamers, they should be granted citizenship. I couldn't agree more. Come on. And look, all this stuff about like, well, all of you Democrats want to just let in all these people because they're just going to vote for you. Let me just say something about this. The great majority of people who can vote don't. So start there. Really think all these people are going to vote overall. And why do Republicans keep thinking that people who've migrated to the United States or if we have more robust immigration, if we move immigration from, you know, 150,000 people a year to a million, which I think we should have, the number should be like a million. Why would those million people not be open to be persuaded to, I don't know, voting for Republicans. 
What is it about Republican policies that make it so unattractive for immigrants to vote for you? Well, as it turns out, that's not true. There are many places in our country where immigrants tend to vote for Republicans at a higher rate. So this thing that it's just blazingly about Democrats trying to pack the polling places doesn't even make sense and isn't actually true. Jerry, pardon me. I know that wasn't the point that you were making, but that's what a lot of people, uh, the, the argument they see when they say that, as you made the point, that all dreamers should be citizens. There's people who say, uh, well, that's just what they're trying to trying to do is to pack the polling places. Uh, and back to Dave. Dave says, my, my son was adopted at three years old from Cambodia. Soon after he arrived, he became a citizen. Uh, I live uh, adjacent to a city where the Cambodian population is large. That's the city of St. Paul. And... Um, yeah, Cambodian uh, peoples were granted refugee status so they could become citizens uh, more quickly. We find ways when the will and the need and the heart is there, which is what we need to get to. This isn't the problem is not figuring out the policy like, like look, in, in climate change policy, the it's complicated because it's really hard to figure out what the best way is in a moving economy to actually bring about the kind of change that we want to save the to save the planet and create, you know, uh, ecological goodness. Immigration goodness isn't that. We're not still figuring out the science on this. Political will will drive this. And frankly, all of us who are like good for you Polish people for taking in the Ukrainian people that are in crisis, write a letter, write a note, call a congressperson. Uh, Beverly says uh, it is reprehensible, um, probably connected to a, converse, uh, a comment earlier. Um, uh, uh, so I think this is about the, 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 the treatment of people on the border and the, the, uh, how, how we're uh, blocking people to get here. Um, Dave says it's an anti-Christian policy. Yeah, it is. And, and look, as somebody who's a Christian pastor, my take has always been, look, being Christian doesn't give you access to morality that other people don't have access to, but your being Christian should call you to being moral along with all the other people that are seeking to be moral. So it might not be the reason for your morality, but it shouldn't be the excuse for your immorality. So join in with the common good of everybody else. I mean, that's, that's Jesus's teaching, basically is join into the kingdom of God with everybody else because the thing that we all hold to is that we all live under the rule and the reign of the same God. So we're all in this thing together. Not some of us have it right and some of us have it wrong. That's the whole preaching of the kingdom of God stuff. And then Karen says, who enforces international law and how unwieldy is that? Boy, Karen, you're really saying something here. You know, what we're finding right now, um, Watching the war in Ukraine and watching the human rights violations and what are being referred to as war crimes being committed by the Russian army and by the direction of Vladimir Putin raises a question. Who enforces it? Well, the collective of nations does. So when the United States went into Iraq and overthrew a government and put in a government that was better for the United States. It was done under the pretense of self-defense. And therefore, the international court said, this is a legitimate action. What Russia is doing right now likely will be considered by the international forces to not be. But as Karen asks, who are the international forces? Who enforces it? This is what the United Nations is about. This is what international tribunals are about. And this stuff all gets negotiated by the same people who are involved in all this stuff. So, Look, whether it's what's happening literally on the border on a bridge where there's people stopping someone from getting to the U.S. to ask for asylum, or it's politicians making decisions about what our policies are going to be and wars we're going to be involved in, or it's international groups. There are people making these decisions. There are people doing these things. You boil all the systems down, and it's people expressing their will through the use of power. That's what a system is. And the way you change a system is to change the people who make these laws. Now, in the United States, we have more access to changing more of the people who make the laws than in some other places, and we should utilize all of them. Which is why people who want to and desire to stay out of politics, um, I think, are just giving up some 
very important, uh, some very important things. Uh, and then um, Bar Barbara says a couple of things. Uh, this is one of them. There appears to be diff a difference between the way we look at white refugees compared to brown and black skinned ones. I, yes, Barbara, I, I agree with you totally. Ab th there is no doubt that that's the case. I mean, this uh, that was expressed bluntly by the former and failed presidential candidate Donald Trump when he said, how come we can't have, you know, refugees from other countries? And he was referring to like people that look like him. Like why why are they all from what he called shithole countries? That's that that whole idea. But then I will say, you know, brown skinned people from Afghanistan are welcomed in the United States with the full force of of welcome because they showed themselves in people's minds to be truly American by helping the American war effort. So you have to do something to overcome this. And that's, a, that's an enormously uh, huge problem. So the, the way that race and, and, and ethnic bias plays out in the United States is more complicated than just a skin tone test. It actually goes deep into people believe that the person has the United States best interest in mind. And man, look, there's a lot of people and the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party is this way, that they're more likely to trust a Russian than they are to trust a Mexican because they think the Russian probably has the United States best interest in mind. Now, what is that? I think it's probably white nationalism. And they see those people as being more like them than people, you know, uh, from countries that look less like them. It's just despicable. And, uh, and our policies um, play this out. Okay, uh, Karen, uh, and now, now as this one, um, Barbara, apparently, this is to Barbara's comment, apparently the same is true in Poland, and that's true. There have been a number of really powerful stories coming out uh, about uh, non-white-skinned Ukrainians who are being bigoted against. Um, it's not only an American problem. Look, uh, racial bias, ethnic bias, and colorism is a global problem, and it's a United States problem. Just because it's global doesn't mean we shouldn't solve it. We should solve it here, and people should solve it everywhere. Uh, it's not, but it's not unique to the United States. I, I know that for a lot of us, we're just convinced that the United States is uniquely all things, uniquely good, uniquely bad, uniquely particular. Um, in some cases, uh, it's not. Not at all. And then Rachel goes on to say, uh, now they're starting to really pile up, so sad that people can't be more accepting of people from other countries. Um, yeah, Rachel, it is. Um, all right. And here's, uh, here's Mike. Mike says, uh, thank you, Doug, for the clarity providing a complex problem that exists in the U.S. immigration asylum policies. It seems that these issues have been purposely kept confusing and unjust in order to keep people out, even if they have a legal right to come here. Yeah, Mike, I think you're on to something. Look, there's a lot of reasons that a lot of uh, our systems and structures keep things complicated because it sometimes centralizes power. Sometimes it's important. Sometimes there's just specifics that feel and sound like complexity that are really do matter. So you got to pay attention to that stuff. And sometimes things are just made complicated because it's a power game. And look, this is true in politics. It's true in in work things. Look, I mean, how many times have you heard people that that work in a in a in a work environment and they can't quite figure out how stuff works around here, and then they find out, you know, from from Jane that well, actually, you got to go talk to Bill if you want to be able to get that thing. That's how we all got that thing, you know. Whether someone, it's like, well, that's awfully complicated. Why is Bill the gatekeeper? Yeah, because Bill likes it that way, right? Uh, when when I was uh, being trained as a pastor in seminary. And they were teaching us Greek and Hebrew, and I'm learning, you know, ancient languages that aren't that aren't even used anymore, other than in the specific translation of the Bible, of which, you know, I'm never going to translate from the Greek. I remember my Greek professor saying basically this: Well, the reason we are going to teach you all Greek is because this is one of the things that's going to separate you from your congregants. It's a power play. It's the special language that's really complicated that only some of us know and understand. Now, does it lead to greater understanding, greater life, greater belief, greater goodness? No, probably interferes with it. But does it make people feel really great when they hear their pastor say, well, in the Koine Greek, this expression was actually had three variants to it. In the English language, we only have one. And therefore, yeah, we go, right? Yeah, for sure. That power play stuff. And look, it's not just in Christianity and religion. 
my, my wife's a yoga teacher, and I'm constantly saying to her, like, you really have to tell me about what the Sanskrit word is? Like, I don't care what the Sanskrit word is. Like, why does it, why, why are we going back to that? Now, she'll, she will argue, well, because there's something more rich there, something more true there that our English language doesn't have, and I'm trying to get at it. And we back and we ping pong back and forth in this conversation. So sometimes, yeah, look, things are more complicated. Uh, you know, when, when my neurosurgeon wants to tell me about what's going on in my brain, I would like him to be really complicated. And not, you know, like, I'm going to go and fix your brain. I want them to be really complicated about it. Some things deserve it, and they should have it. This point I was trying to make about, you know, ecological responses to policy versus immigration policy. It doesn't need to be so complicated. Um, and uh, so sometimes we have to look at these things and say, what? what why is immigration so complicated? Because people want it that way, right? Why is... Um, uh, environmental policy complicated because the science is really complicated. You know, it should be. Uh, and figuring out which things should be sophisticated and complicated and, des and deserve expertise and the things that don't, you know, common sense is good for a whole lot of things. Just not everything. Sometimes you need specific sense. You need, you know, specific knowledge and understanding of certain uh, facts that can seem really complicated. I, I am a new guitar player, as you can see. I have a guitar hanging on my wall. And man, some of these chord changes and some of these picking and strumming patterns are so complicated until people get them. And then they, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm like six, seven weeks into it. I'm like, hey, hang on a minute. I can do that thing now. That thing that was so, so complicated became less complicated and more natural. So yeah, we want people who are, have proficiencies. We want people who are good at things, but let's not allow that to become something that keeps the uh, lack of human flourishing from taking place. And when it has, then we're really onto something. All right. Sorry for that little sermonette. All right. Beverly says uh, the R's, I mean, Republicans, I think, have built a narrative that their base believes they don't see that we need immigrants for labor at the very least. Some have been here for 20 years. Um, yeah. So look, the, the creation of the narrative that people buy into for sure. And Beverly, you are on it. Uh, I mean, I, I thought uh, I didn't know how deeply I was impacted by those narratives until we started our experience along the border and all this stuff is running through my mind. I'm like, why did I think that way? Well, I didn't know I was carrying an assumption that was given to me by people on information that was not accurate, but I was. I just thought it was the way things were. I think people who want common good immigration and common good asylum seeking and common good refugee practices and common good border practices, we just need to be better at creating a narrative for people. And as it turns out, like, well, who's going to clean your house and who's going to pick your food isn't good enough. It's not working. And, hey, these people need help, too. That's also not working. So we need something something better than that. And then Peggy says, hey, we'll see you on the 23rd. All right, Peggy. Uh, can't wait. Uh, so excited. We're going to be in uh, we're going to be in Michigan on the 23rd. Uh, Holland, Michigan. So join Peggy, join others, you know, grab the auntie, grab the kids, throw them in the station wagon, drive up to Holland or drive over to Grand Haven or Grand Rapids or Columbus, Ohio or Pittsburgh or Madison, Wisconsin or I don't know, come to Minneapolis, come hang out at my house and then come with us to the event. Uh, all this stuff you'll find over on the on the Vote Common Good site, all the list of all this. And then Jim says, when well, we're going to start caring for our people who are sick, and can't receive medical care. Yeah, look, Jim, I mean, see, here's the thing. What Jim is pointing out here, I think, is part of the larger um, uh, larger category. Like, like if you were, I don't know, arranging thoughts and you're going to use sort of a linear uh, hierarchical way of doing this, you might create a category. And then under the category, you'd have certain things, certain topics, like a menu at a restaurant, right? Desserts, drinks, entrees, appetizers. It's almost lunchtime. I would create the category, those who deserve it, as the category. And then under that, you'd put immigration. Because we treat immigrants differently if we think they deserve it. I'd put medical care under those who deserve it. And Jim, I think this is where my mind goes to what you're, what, what you're raising. I think maybe you're getting at this too is... This, some people deserve, some people don't. It's often called a merit-based system. I'm looking at this really interesting book about the damage of the merit-based system in the United States. Meritocracy, some people call it. I remember the first time I heard the phrase meritocracy. I think it was maybe a, 
uh, MSNBC interview. I was like, what in the world, that word, like these people and these like words that nobody uses and just, you know, Chris Hayes, smarty pantsy thing, like just drives me crazy. It's kind of a good word. Uh, I, I mean, it, I think it's a good word to know. I don't think it's a good word to use. But merit-based systems. I mean, to me, I'd say that, and I literally flash back to being in Cub Scouts, where you earned a merit badge. A badge that showed that you have earned the right to make a fire or, you know, carry a canteen or shoot a gun, whatever it is. The idea that people earn it and deserve it, so then they get it, it's a real problem. And it's, it's, it actually connects so many of these other um, points together. Uh, let's put this one up there because it's just fun, George. Great logo, by the way, George, the, the rainbow hands uh, smiling. George says, excellent points made once again. Well, <laughs> thank you, George. Uh, this is an awesome broadcast from Rachel. Hey, by the way, I'm not reading these ahead of time. I'm just clicking on them over here, and then they're popping up. All right, so this will be the last one, I think, because this is the last one. Jim's saying, being from California, I run into hostility in Texas, Oregon, and Washington, Arizona, that we can't even travel between states without usually retrumplicans telling you Californians and any immigrant, any immigrant nonsense. Yeah, look, um, <laughs> I travel the country a lot and traveling the country on a bicycle and then talking to people as you go along. And we went through all these states, you know, California and Arizona and New Mexico and Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, uh, 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 Mississippi, uh, Florida. It's amazing how even in the United States, people are regionally territorial. Like, wow, you're from Minnesota. That's a long way from here. What are you doing down here? I don't know, going around the country. (laughs) uh, uh, There's a a thing, like, what y'all doing here? I don't think you're from here. Like, we get that in Minnesota. We treat other people that way. Um, It's a thing, and it's a thing to figure out and work out. One of the... Okay, I I know sometimes I'm hard on religion here, uh, because as an insider, I think, you know, you should be, and mostly it deserves it. But one of the things that religion, and especially American-based Christian religion can do for people when it's working well is to open people up to the broader scope of the world. Sometimes because you know and you meet people in churches or organizations or you travel with your religious group and you start to realize, oh, whether someone lives in this part of the planet or another part of the planet, whether somebody's in this state or that state, you start to find this coalesce, coalescing of life together. And it opens your eyes and uh, connects people together. And, um, you know, and look, this isn't a uniquely American problem. It's, it's an everybody, everywhere, all the time set of conditions that we need to respond to on a regular basis. And stop beating ourselves up for it and just say, like, oh, yeah, it's a thing you got to work out. It's a thing you got to do. It's, uh, uh, it's, I'm borrowing an analogy from someone that I heard talk about race this way. And he said, you know, racism isn't something that you should think of like having your tonsils removed, like you had your racism removed. It's something you think about more like oral hygiene, that you get stuff caught in your teeth on a regular basis. And sure, you brush and floss, but then, you know, it comes back. So you get rid of it again. So when it shows up, you get rid of it again. Yeah, the, 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 there's just conditions of human experience that are like this. They just keep showing up, and you keep dealing with them, and you get rid of them again, and you keep moving. Uh, as opposed to saying, like, oh, I'm not going to talk about brushing my teeth. I brushed my teeth when I was 12 years old, and they were, they were perfectly clean. And no, of course not. That's not how you think about tooth brushing or oral hygiene. Um, maybe it's how you think about having your appendix removed. You shouldn't be, you know, once that's happened, that's, that, that's a one and done. Um, but many of these issues are less one and done and um, actually, you know, uh, more ongoing. And then, Rachel, uh, that's great. Uh, hi, you have family in Mount Minnesota. Hey, Rachel, if they want to, have them come to our event here in Minneapolis um, and, uh, and to join us on March 27th, 6 p.m. You can find it on the Vote Common Good website or anywhere you're watching this. It's going to show up at some time. So you can, uh, you can I don't know what, what, which part of Facebook you're watching this on. Um, all right. And then uh, Beverly's great conversations, folks. And Dave, up here, Christina. Thanks. Thanks, friends, for uh, uh, you know, flying solo with me today. Uh, hour and five minutes. Ridiculous. Just talking straight for that amount of time. But uh, we'll be back tomorrow. A little bit of good news. Speaking, Rachel, of Mound, Minnesota, somebody I think lives in Mound, Minnesota is going to be on Terry Esau. He has started two organizations that are great. One of them is Guitars for Kids, and the other one is Bikes for Kids. And they, well, 
do exactly what their name says. Um, I, I like organizations uh, that have a name that describes what they do. They do bikes for kids and guitars for kids. And we do vote common good. I, I like that stuff uh, where, where, you know, the, the name is the action. Uh, but Terry's going to be on, so uh, uh, it'll, be, it'll be, be worth your time if you're able to join us. And if you listen on the podcast, uh, send us a note sometime. We'd love to know that you're out there. And, you know, as you, if you listen to podcasts, you know, we always say this. Uh, it really actually does help when you rate, like, and share the podcast. The algorithms love it. It's like feeding a puppy a dog treat. I promise you, go on, like this thing, give us a review, and the algorithm just goes crazy and shares it even broader, so more broadly. So every time you interact and do something like that, it's a payoff. I, I mean, it doesn't do anything for us other than it spreads the word. Uh, more things get out, um, and uh, it's, it's, it's really good. Um, all right, and Beverly says, I'm going to finish with this, learn power chords. Oh, I am learning power chords. Hey, what I can't quite get is when I'm playing the power chords, sometimes I just hit it so hard, uh, and then it you know makes, makes it too noisy. Uh, right hand, left hand um, independence is the thing I'm really struggling with right now. Like when I'm moving, I'll pause, or if I drop a finger, I'll miss the, you know, if I'm doing a particular strum note, like from a fourth string to a fifth string, I want to start on the fourth instead of the fifth. That, I, anyway, my brain is still has hooked my hands together in a way that guitar is making my hands start to work independently and separately. And uh, so, uh, power chords are super super fun for that. All right, hey hey, I'll, let's let's welcome Peggy. Uh, Peggy Ealing is uh, saying here that she is uh, listening for the first time. So uh, Peggy, uh, super glad to have you aboard. I've got a little sound effects here supposed to be playing for you, Peggy. I don't know where they are. Oh, maybe they are playing. Holy moly. Sorry about that. I didn't have my earpieces in. So, Peggy, that's for you. A little cheers. Glad to have you aboard. All right. So last comment here. See, I just got to be done because people keep putting up the comments. Uh, thank you for the courage and uplifting words at a time when right now it seems like we really need to hear them. Well, Rennie, I'll tell you how sweet of you. Thank you. Uh, and right back at you. Thanks for listening, anybody. I mean, <laughs> you just wonder any day. Uh, is there anybody in there? A little Pink Floyd running through your mind. All right, friends, uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. See ya.